the car was immediately engulfed in flames, but it also engulfed all the gas yeah. that was on the ground that I was standing in. And my fire captain grabbed me before I even knew what was going on and pulled me back out of fire. Like I was literally on fire. Damn. <laughs> All right, all right. Okay, who the fuck do I think I am? Matthew McConaughey right now. Like, whoa. (laughs) Can you explain that to me? Ugh. Good Lord. Um, Hello. It's me, Lauren Mitchell. Uh, I'm here, as always, to host this very podcast that you're listening to right now. It's Cavern of Secrets. Cavern of Secrets. You guys... Since we last spoke, since I last spoke into this microphone, I actually had a totally different intro prepared for this episode but then I came back from my trip to America and it seemed like the world order had shifted a little bit and it seemed kind of wild to put this podcast out and not address it off the top like just the wackiness of our current and wackiness is like I don't know you know what I mean I feel like I'm being glib but like I'm not being glib it feels like everything is upside down you know what I mean This episode's also really great. We talked with my friend Courtney about going to protest at the Dakota Pipeline. You know, Anshman and I felt like we'd be remiss to not sort of off the top address the world. You know what I mean? So I was in America and Donald Trump got elected. And I am fully here to admit to you from my little leftist bubble that I for sure did not think that Donald Trump was going to win that election. I was in Palm Springs with three women who I love very much on a fun little girls trip. And we definitely did not think that we were going to be uh, crying drunk at the end of the night and like sad crying drunk, not like, I love you so much. This is great. Happy crying drunk. You know, just the bad kind. That really uh, had me fucked up for sure. You know, I don't think of myself as an ignorant person. I don't think of myself as someone who is not like in tune with kind of the state of the world. But I don't know. I got tricked, man. I really thought Donald Trump was not going to fucking happen. And here we are. But, you know, everyone I know that isn't a white lady living in a leftist bubble in America, you know, kind of had an inkling that this thing, Trump's thing, his xenophobic, racist, homophobic, just gross train was leaving the station and it was heading for the White House. I don't know. I'm just not very good at metaphors right now. I feel fucked up about this. So it's scary as hell. I'm fucking scared, man. And I'm really scared for everyone that lives in America. I'm scared for my friends. I'm scared for my black friends, my brown friends, my queer friends. I'm scared for my Muslim friends. I'm scared for anyone that is visibly not just a straight white person in America. I'm very scared. And I'm scared for everyone else too, because the consequences of this are large. In the wake of all this, I did want to talk to my fellow whites about the whole safety pin thing. Now, I understand wanting to do something to help. 
You're like, man, I'm not a fucking racist. I wouldn't have voted for Donald Trump. I didn't vote for Donald Trump. Like, I'm a good person. That may be true. But also, you are complicit in the racist structures. We are, I am complicit in the racist structures that prop up the American government, the Canadian government. I, I'm complicit in that. I am a racist person who is unlearning all of the racist shit that I was taught from day one. You know what I mean? It's just, it's part of our education. It's part of our society. It's part of everything to just learn racism. And I've been trying to unlearn it for a long time. As white people, even though you didn't vote for Donald Trump, you wouldn't have voted for Donald Trump, you have black and brown friends, you're chilling, you know what I mean? You're cool, you're not a racist. It's like... You have to understand, first of all, your place in the structures, the systems. So getting back to the whole safety pin thing, it's like, yeah, of course you want to do something. And ideally, because you want people to know that you're a good person, the safety pin thing seems like a good idea. It's like a visibility, like, look at me, I'm not a bad person, and also look at me, I can help you if you need me to. Like, I get that this seems like a good idea, other than the fact that, like, why would you just start posting about it online immediately? Like, I understand wanting to mobilize people, but also mobilizing, like, white nationalists to also wear safety pins and to use them to do some really scary, violent shit. Mm, Also, maybe not a good strategy is what I would say off the jump. But I've noticed this trend of white people jumping into conversations that people of color are having, queer people, about how white people wearing safety pins doesn't make them feel more safe. And I've noticed white people getting very uppity about this. No. If the safety pin is the first thing you've decided to do as a bit of anti-racist activism, you need to, like, probably take a seat, do a little research into the things that you can do. There's, like, so many things you can do that aren't wearing a safety pin. There's so many things. You can not wear a safety pin and you can step in when you see someone being harassed on the street, on the subway, wherever, in public, that you see that they're being harassed because of their race or their gender or whether they are visibly queer. You can do that. You don't need to wear a safety pin to do that shit. You can, like, go home and talk to your racist relatives. I've seen a lot of people being like, I don't want to go home for Christmas. Well, (laughs) sorry, you kind of do, and you kind of have to tell your grandma she's a racist, maybe. Um, And also, like, if you have money, like, extra money that you would maybe be using to, like, spend $50 at H&M or something, like, no shade. I mean, whatever, purchase whatever you want with your money. But, like, maybe take that $50 and give it to a group that's doing grassroots work. You could give to... Dakota Access Pipeline's uh, legal fund. We've, we'll put a link to that. We'll put a link to a bunch of things in the show notes for this that you could give to if you have some spare cash lying around. Don't fucking argue with people of color about the safety pin. The safety pin is literally the least you can be fucking... It's the least you can be doing. And so if a person of color says, that doesn't make me feel any safer, just think about why that is. Just think about it. And then be like, well, maybe there's literally anything else I could do that isn't antagonize someone who's already so fucking scared about a visible performative piece of allyship. 
It's not, uh, as the teens say, chill. Not chill. Not that now is the time to be chill. <laughs> we should all be angry as fuck. So angry. So don't chill. But also, white people, chill out a little bit. You know what I mean? I don't know. I want to be vigilant, and I also want to be gentle and kind because I'm scared as hell. So I don't know if that's an okay <laughs> message to leave you with. But <sighs> that's what I got. Ugh. All right. Like I said, the guest on today's episode is amazing. It's my friend, Courtney Skye. She is a fellow comedian. She is a policy analyst. And she recently went to join the protests in North Dakota. So we talk extensively about that. We talk about comedy. We talk about, God, we talk about so many things. I really want to thank Courtney for coming through, being the beautiful, vulnerable, vulnerable person that she is. I think we had a really great conversation, and I think you're going to enjoy it. Uh, and please, everyone, stay strong, stay pissed, but stay gentle and kind. Okay. I love y'all. How's it going, dude? Pretty good. Yeah. Got a lot of things on the go right now. A lot of things, a lot of plates spinning in the air. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, A lot of things going on. It's been pretty busy. I've had this like thing in the back of my mind. It's been like an idea that's been stewing there. And I finally like had a couple people that I really like, like be like, just do it, like do it, do it, do it. And so I was like, fine, I'll do this thing. I'm going to start producing a monthly comedy show on my home reserve. Amazing. And the premise is going to be that I'm using this monthly comedy show to build a following in my community for my eventual run for chief. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God, dude. (laughs) And then for my eventual takeover of the community. (laughs) My Twitter handle is running for chief. (laughs) So the show is called At Queen Pies for Chief. (laughs) Oh, my God. Have you ever performed on your reserve before? Yes. So I did one show. I did a... um, a fundraiser. I've had every job. I should just premise that by saying this. Like, yeah. I'm gonna throw, like, I actually should have said that when introducing yeah. you. When yeah. Courtney says she's had every job, she's literally had every fucking job. Yeah. So I used to coach uh, sprint kayaking and canoeing. And mm-hmm. so the canoe club on reserve had a fundraiser. And so um, one of the ladies that's on the canoe club invited a bunch of comedians that she knows. So she invited her nephew, who's like an open mic comedian, and his friends, plus me, to do a show in our community, which was not the best. We were in the gym of a social service building um, doing stand-up just on a gymnasium floor with the worst acoustics ever with the lights on in the gym (laughs) telling jokes after a meal oh good (laughs) yeah yeah Yeah. I had been doing stand-up I think for like maybe six months at that time so Mm -hmm. I was really rough Mm -hmm. I had barely remembered my jokes so I was like definitely one of the funniest comedians (laughs) oh god I had a a complete set but there's also like yeah it was a really rough show so I kind of feel like I have to like redeem myself from that because that's what a lot of people have seen Mm -hmm. And also a lot of people that I know from my home community have, like, traveled out to Toronto to see me perform. Yeah, so it feels so, like yeah. you got you to gotta throw them a bone a little bit. Yeah. 
Plus, I was, like, super bitter mm-hmm. about the fact that my communities had, like, some pretty big-name comedians through the community mm-hmm. to do shows. And, like, I'll email them and be like, hey, here you're coming. I would love to, like, open for you. And none of them have responded to me. Wow. Which, that's so yeah, cold. Yeah. So, like, I don't want to name names, but, like. I'm sure people will recognize all of the famous indigenous comedians that have been through my hometown recently, and uh, they've all ignored me. Wow. Yeah. So I really want to be like, hey, what about me? So, yeah. And yeah. you're like hometown girl. You're the hometown star. Yeah. So I'm, show really, love. I'm really hoping that like the show is going to be well received. It's going to be a monthly, so I'm hoping to have like some of my favorite comedians there. Well, like for me. Sure. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and I'm trying to like tailor it because I'm like, I'm like, I want everyone. I want everyone on the first show. I'm like, wait. wait self-restraint yeah. <laughs> curate a good lineup for each show yeah and i feel like i've done this before where i've like tried to produce a show and just like booked exclusively headliners on it yeah. <laughs> it's just like people that are just like amazing comedians and you're like everyone can't do 20 minutes yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's what's tough it's like especially when you start having a network mm-hmm. that's like all really good people mm-hmm. and you're just like oh shit all of you are like all of you could do, like, 30 minutes if mm-hmm. you wanted, but, like, mm-hmm. that's not what we're doing. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> I feel like I have a lot of really, like, Haudenosaunee-specific jokes mm-hmm. that just never land anywhere. So yeah. I'm like, I need to do the jokes, of, like, the inside jokes that people are going to get in front of them. Yeah, right? Because yeah. I feel like we've talked about this before. Like, there's times when you're like, oh, I have all these jokes mm-hmm. about, like, being Mohawk mm-hmm. or, like, I have all these jokes about – yeah, just mm-hmm. about very, like <laughs> – inside mm-hmm. stuff that you're like really does not work on white people from Toronto who like don't know any indigenous people. Yeah. I need someone to get it. Like yeah. I <laughs> need <laughs> I need people to just appreciate how funny my intersectional feminist in the streets who didn't show any of the sheets joke is, you know? <laughs> it's my Twitter bio right yeah. now. So- and you're like, this is so funny. <laughs> someone please hear this. <laughs> yeah. Plus the usual, like, um, Bad Bitches is two two years next month. Yeah, that's crazy. So Bad Bitches, to provide a wee bit of context, is Mm -hmm. a feminist comedy collective that Courtney started, that I am part of. Mm -hmm. Uh, We do a monthly show at Comedy Bar, and it's just like a rotating lineup of all the women in the collective. Mm -hmm. And it's been going on for two years. That's so dope. Yeah. And actually, today is my comedy anniversary. Oh, shit. Yeah. Well, happy anniversary, baby. Thank you. Yeah, November 1st, 2014. It's the first time I ever did stand-up. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. Damn, that's crazy. Two years. You're so funny. I, I can't believe it. Like, I can't believe the things that I've gotten to experience. I think it's also part of my personality, though, to just be like, I'm going to jump in and do this the best. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to be a firefighter, and I'm going to be a great firefighter. Like, that's, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How long were you a firefighter for, like, three years, right? Yeah, I was a firefighter for three years. I was a volunteer firefighter in my community uh, at Six Nations. Um, I don't remember the exact date. I kind of tapered off at the end. Volunteer firefighters don't get paid an hourly wage. Yes. Even though the fire is just as real. <laughs> <laughs> And people still die. (laughs) So it's a volunteer department and you basically are on your evenings and weekends. Um, I think I had started working in policy at that point as well. And um, at the fire department then I worked in 
uh, prevention, like uh, fire prevention. Mm-hmm. And I would go and like take Sparky and we would talk to kids about stop, drop, and roll. <laughs> and I would do that kind of public education stuff. The fire department at the time ran their own dispatch, so their own 911 dispatch out of the fire department. Oh, wow. So I became a fire dispatcher. So like when you call 911, they're like, please fire ambulance. And they redirect your call. I was the one that answered when you requested fire. <laughs> <laughs> so I did that um, for a while. And I succumbed to peer pressure at that point where it was like, you need to be a firefighter now. <laughs> and then you were actually like saving people's lives from fires from then on out. Yeah. It was a weird mix of things. So firefighters go to every emergency call that isn't police or ambulance like if someone's sick and it's obviously an ambulance or there's a crime and it's obviously a police matter that's when they go but firefighters go to everything kind of in between that so they do like hazardous materials calls um gas leaks train derailments um all this kind of stuff they do all of those things and so fire training is learning how to respond to all those different calls it's a very technical field Mm -hmm. which i don't think i appreciated until i actually did it we're like you have to know the basic construction of every type of housing construction in the past hundred years. Oh, wow. So like all the different construction techniques that were used on a house. So something built in the 70s that's down the street from something that was built in the 90s is going to burn differently because the house is a different age. Oh. So it's a really heavy like uh, academic burden of like studying actual things. And then there's a lot of like science kind of background to it. So how things burn and chemical reactions and learning how to identify those things immediately so that you don't actually do something that's going to make a situation worse. Huh. Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. Right. Because people I think people see like fire trucks and they're like, there's just tall, dumb guys on it that mm-hmm. are running around with a, like a big red truck. Mm-hmm. And, what, and then when they're not doing that, they're like posing half naked in calendars. Yeah, exactly. And so the th- unique thing about my fire department is that it was about 40% female, mm-hmm. which was really unheard of for yeah. a fire department to have that many women. There were women involved in like senior leadership. So like some of our fire captains were women. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it was a really dynamic workplace to be in. Like the expertise of the firefighters that are serving in that community are just phenomenal. I would say probably about 90% of them live in the community. So you're responding to calls that are your family and your friends. So that's really difficult. I've responded to fire calls where it was like my family members have passed away. Oh, wow. Yeah. Like my department really took to heart that the stuff that you see in the fire service will haunt you for the rest of your life kind Mm -hmm. of thing, right? And so they're really proactive about, like, dealing with it, which is, like, really funny because, like, there'd be, like, the old salty firefighters that are, like, the guys who you think would never want to talk about their feelings and be, like, I'm just here to make sure everyone's okay. (laughs) Like, really caring for each other, right? Which is, like, kind of like we've talked about this before when it comes to comedy, right? Like, comedy is a male-dominated space. Mm -hmm. And, like, before I was a firefighter, I did a lot of police training. Like, I wanted to be a police officer. And I grew up with exclusively brothers. So I'm, like, used to, like, male-dominated mm-hmm. spaces and and that kind of dynamic. And so for me to be, like, completely welcomed and respected in the fire service and then go to someplace like comedy that's equally male-dominated and just to feel like, wow, this is one of the most violent, patriarchal, sexist places I've ever been into yeah. compared to policing and fire yeah like it's so it's so wild to see that and especially i mean i think comedy is such a weird place because so much of it is super Mm -hmm. individualistic and so Mm -hmm. people tend not to think about it as a community unless that's Mm -hmm. convenient for them so unless Mm -hmm. there's like 
money to be made or opportunity to be had by having a sort of community type of situation. But I do think that, like, the influx of women in comedy has made it (laughs) because, like, especially, I think, women and then definitely racialized people and queer people sort of had to go in and, like, carve a space Mm -hmm. and make that space be somewhere that they felt comfortable that Mm -hmm. wasn't just this, like, super weirdly violent patriarchal type Mm -hmm. of situation. Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, there's no systems in place within the comedy community to maybe prevent that. I don't know. Yeah, it's weird because I feel like there's, like, at a certain point when I was trying to be a police officer, right, like, there would be those tall, hyper-capable men who are, like, six foot plus, uh, super fit, fit that physical kind of like stereotype of what that profession looks like. Mm -hmm. And at a certain point in my career or my effort there, those guys would be like, you know, I didn't think you belonged here because you're short and you're brown and you're a woman and all these kind of things. But they were like, I was wrong. Mm -hmm. And there's a certain point where you can pay your dues Mm -hmm. and you meet kind of like this like community threshold for not only for like – like for trust, right? Because especially in the fire service, right, you have to trust mm-hmm. your your family, your fire service family to protect your life. Mm-hmm. And you, re- you realize any call you go to at any given time, you could be called on to not only save some a stranger's life, but the people that mean most to you. You're mm-hmm. going to be called to save your brother's life, your sister's life mm-hmm. in the fire service. And so you have to have a really fundamental trust and belief in the people that are on your team mm-hmm. that they're going to be able to haul your ass out of a fire or save you or pull you back from something that's happening. Like I remember once I was at a car fire and it was in a field and we didn't know that the gas was leaking out of the truck or out of the vehicle. Mm-hmm. And so I was on the hose line and I was spraying on the car and you have to like reposition that at some point to go to the other side of the vehicle and to reposition the fire hose, you have to kind of like almost turn it off it's only running a little bit Mm -hmm. and so when i turned the fire hose down to like reposition um that allowed oxygen to get to the gas and the car was immediately engulfed in flames but it also engulfed all the gas that was on the ground that i was standing in jesus so i was immediately engulfed in flame like maybe like five seconds later and my fire captain grabbed me before I even knew what was going on and pulled me back out of fire. Like I was literally on fire. Like, and I was so protected by my fire gear that I was like, oh, why am I kind of warm? Damn. (laughs) And he had like pulled me back before I had even like known that I was at risk. And you have to put that trust into the people that are around you. Yeah. Holy shit. that kind of thing happens all the time, right? There's all those kind of like near misses that exist in that immediately threatening to life, like, space Mm -hmm. that you're in, right? And so I feel like in comedy, there's never going to be a threshold or a time or a place where you can have enough merit to be able to justify being treated decently. I could have whoever many credits to my name. I could have however many experiences, and I have had a lot in just even the two years that I've been doing this. But I feel like there's never any point that I'm going to be able to reach where someone is going to be able to say, Yeah, she's funny. (laughs) 
I wanted to talk about your trip to North Dakota. Yes. Um, you went to Standing Rock. You went to North Dakota to mm-hmm. protest the pipeline that's being uh, mm-hmm. put in. You went like a month ago now? Yeah, I went in September. Yes. Yeah, so I should preface this by saying that the first time I went to the Dakotas was over 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. So I think I was the summer between grade 9 and grade 10, mm-hmm. around there, that I went to South Dakota for the first time. Mm-hmm. So it was a, a dream of my dad's and a life experience that was on his bucket list to go to Sturgis, South Dakota for the motorcycle rally. <laughs> and my dad has hired a Harley his entire life. Amazing. And so we, my dad and I, packed up his truck and went out to Sturgis, South Dakota. Since then... We've gone back like several times. I've been there four times since mm-hmm. then. The trip that we went in September was like my fifth time going mm-hmm. to the Dakotas. Um, going to South Dakota when I was in my teens was like one of the formative experiences of my life. Mm-hmm. Uh, going to the Lakota's territory, I learned really in depth what it was like to be indigenous. They really taught me what it meant to be a person of earth, what it meant to be a person of land, but also a person of a specific territory. So the Dakotas, you know, all that history, all of, you know, uh, Trailer Tears and Wounded Knee and all that territory where all these people are from, you know, the massacres that happened across the plains in the U.S. um, It's a history that's all throughout the land there. And when you drive to to Dakotas, like you drive through just the plains and you're on a straight road that has no bends in it and no hills and it's flat. And then you eventually come to the Badlands, which has like the epic rock formations. And then you go to the Black Hills and then there's like the buttes or butts or whatever they're called. Um, and all throughout the Black Hills and all that territory is the forced removal of Lakota people. And so learning their history and learning like some of their great leaders of the past, you really can see their fight to stay there. Mm -hmm. And so their fight for the land is well documented throughout history, but also the sacrifice of the Lakota people is known throughout history. And I'm going to probably start crying. But, like, when I first uh, heard about the pipeline and heard about what a huge threat that was to their territory, I got really sad. And I was really restless um, being in Toronto and being here because um, I knew how much – I know how much that land means to them. Mm -hmm. And – how important it is to them and how much they've sacrificed throughout history to protect their land. And they have a prophecy about the black snake coming, which is you've probably seen on social media. They have a prophecy that um, a black snake is going to come to their territory and it's going to be kind of like a deciding factor over their continued existence. And when I begin to hear like whispers or you know, Lakota people are talking about how they believe this is they believe this is the fruition of the Black Snake prophecy. I was so sad 
because they will do anything to protect their land. Mm -hmm. And they really believe through prophecy that this is could be the end of their nation. Wow. And that is, it's so difficult to, to know that that's how real the sacrifice is for them, that they are, that this is not, that this is a, a, they're a peaceful reclamation they're trying to make and they're a peaceful people and they're mindful people and they're prayerful people. Um, but knowing that they are in a time of prophecy and they're in a time of um, this uh, cultural and spiritual existence, I think I recognized very early on, more so than some of my peers, that this is a really powerful time for them. And so um, I was really restless and I was very like, I was very frustrated um, having to be in Toronto and being in uh, being in Canada. And, and I really wanted to honor what the Lakota people had given to me mm -hmm. because um, without their example, I don't think I would have, would be as strong in my identity as I am. Mm -hmm. Because when I came back to this territory, um, after visiting them when I was a teen, I knew what it meant to honor the land that I'm from. Mm -hmm. And that was really pivotal point in me understanding what it means to be an Indigenous person. And so um, there was the ruling that was made that their um, injunction be enforced. And it was the day that Obama had kind of said, oh, we're going to halt uh, construction on this land. Mm -hmm. um, it was like a Thursday or something that happened. Everything was pretty up in the air. And I was at work in uh, the policy shop that I work in here. And one of my colleagues has been following the protest very closely. And it was like 3.30 on a Friday afternoon. And we just looked at each other and we're like, do you want to go? And he was like, yeah, I want to go. And I said, well, I know how to get there. If you want to go, I'll go. And so I went downstairs and asked my supervisor if I could have the next week off, use my vacation to go protest uh, Dakota Access Pipeline. And she was like, yes, of course. <laughs> of course. She's like, 100%. Like, if you want to use your vacation time to do that, she's like, by all means, go. And so I went upstairs and was like, my time off next week's approved. What are you doing? <laughs> and uh, my colleague went with Stan was like, oh, shit, I guess I have to go. <laughs> like, and so he talked to his partner and he talked to his supervisor and got the time off. Uh, that was a Friday. We made kind of arrangements, um, recruited one of our friends, uh, Nikki, to come with us, got the rental car sorted on Saturday, picked up the car at like 6 p.m., we were ready to go then, like we had been packing all day, but then we realized, oh, it's nighttime and we are trying to embark on a road trip. <laughs> uh, so we went to sleep yeah, at 6 smart, p.m. Very smart. Um, woke up at 3 a.m. Stan came around, picked us up at the car at 3 a.m. And we were on the road by 4 a.m. Uh, Toronto time. Drove straight through from Chicago into South Dakota. 
we arrived in the Badlands, South Dakota at 3 a.m. local time the next day. Jesus. <laughs> we drove straight 25 hours That's to get crazy. there. Yeah. <laughs> so in the whole time, we kept saying, like, I can't believe we're here. Like, we were in Chicago. We're like, I can't believe we're doing this. <laughs> I can't believe we're actually doing this. And so my uh, friends that I went with, uh, Nick and Zan, they had never been to Lakota's territory. And I knew North Dakota, that area is kind of really flat. Like, mm-hmm. the geography is a little bit different. And so I told them, I was like, well, if we're going to go, we should at least take a day and go through all of their territory so you can see what it means and what it looks like and what it feels like. And so we went to sleep at 3 a.m. in the Badlands National Park and slept till the sun came up, which was a couple hours, and drove through the Badlands, um, went down to Mount Rushmore, gave Mount Rushmore the finger. (laughs) (laughs) As you do. (laughs) As you do. Went to the Crazy Horse Monument, which is just down the street, and then up through uh, Deadwood and uh, out to Sturgis, and then uh, to the camp. So we were there by the Monday night and to the camp. And it was amazing. We had a really powerful experience there. It was really amazing. I felt really good to be back. And I felt really amazing to be amongst like so many indigenous people. Mm-hmm. Like, And it was really powerful to see how focused they were on prayer. And how spiritual it was and how of one mind people were able to come to when they were there, which is like a really powerful kind of like imagery from like the Mohawk and the Haudenosaunee culture is that like that peacefulness and mindfulness that comes from being of one mind and being having a good mind is a really powerful thing to experience. And so um, there were... I think 86 graves that were disturbed through the pipeline construction in Standing Rock. And so uh, Tuesday morning, we were able to participate in some of the ceremony that they did for the bodies that were disturbed. And uh, they waited because of the embargo that uh, Obama had put in the mining company at that point was voluntarily removing their equipment. And so they went and sat and waited to watch the mining company rem- or the, the the company remove the equipment from the construction area where they were going. So that was on the Tuesday that we were there. Wednesday, again, they're helping uh, documenting some of the work and participating in the marches, participating in the ceremony. And then Thursday morning, um, we wanted to see the pipeline. Mm-hmm. And because of where we were, you couldn't see it. And they were just kind of removing the topsoil at that point. And so we actually wanted to see where the construction was. It was also like one of the first days where there were some mass arrests on the Wednesday that we were there. And so we were getting a lot of calls and texts from family being like, were you arrested? What's going on? We're seeing things in the news, media being reported. It was because where we were um, – there wasn't construction, but I think it was like 40 miles down the road, there was active construction going on. Because I think there was a bit of a misconception at one point that people thought that the pipeline construction had stopped. Mm-hmm. And we were there kind of in the point where there's that local awareness raising of like, hey, they actually haven't stopped. That was kind of a way to like deflate the momentum of the movement mm-hmm. and get people to stop supporting it. And so... We were there when people were like, no, this is still, like, actively happening. So we went in the rain 
and we kind of like packed up all of our things and we're like we should go and try and find the uh find the pipeline so we actually like went up through bismarck west of standing rock about a hundred miles or so maybe maybe less than that Mm -hmm. but we went and saw like some of the active construction that was going on and it's crazy to actually see because like the land is very flat hardly any trees Mm -hmm. like very sparse tree coverage and just for as far as you can see into the horizon a green pipeline wow and north dakota is like the sunflower capital of the world Mm -hmm. like not not officially but like there's just fields and fields of millions of sunflowers wow and so you're we were on like a dirt road looking at the horizon of just like a field of sunflowers and a pipeline going right through it jesus (laughs) there was another one that was like they just went through like a grazing field of cows and there are cows like sniffing the pipeline like what is this (laughs) and like yeah this like never-ending advance of this like corporate construction right which was really intense to see the kind of like mindful strategy of like Everyone in the media thinks that there was this huge uh, win that the Obama had stopped the pipeline. Mm-hmm. And literally 10 exits down the highway, there are people actively doing construction. Yeah. Fuck. I'm really glad I went. I really want to go back. Um, yeah, you, like, came back and were like, I'm radical as ever and I'm going back ASAP. Yeah, I, like, <laughs> I know. <laughs> this is yeah. classic Courtney. Yeah, so, like, I remember, like, as I have, like, continued to advocate for my radical ideals and, like, the more accepted they are, like, when I, like, say something very radical and people are like, oh, good point. And they're, like, take it into their their understanding. I'm like, hmm, not radical enough. <laughs> <laughs> so I was talking to, like, our mutual friend Jess, right, about how, like, I was very frustrated that I was, like, being so, like, accepted by, like, mainstream, like, people that I was like, I'm not radical enough. I need to find a new way to become even more radical in my thinking and my ideals. And Jess was like, oh, God, how was that even possible? <laughs> You're, like, one of the most radical people I know. And then I went to Standing Rock and came back and was like, I'm the most radical person. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, what? it's funny to me. Like, knowing you and then, like, mm-hmm. learning about, like, when you were mm-hmm. younger, you wanted to be a cop. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, it gave me a real deep understanding <laughs> of, like, what informs your, like, radical thinking in your current politics. It's like, mm-hmm. yeah, like, you've been on ride-alongs. Like, you yeah. were, like, on your way to, like, working mm-hmm. in that field, yeah. like, being a cop, being a firefighter. Yeah. yeah. And then you just had a, you had a real 180. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> made a real change. Made a real, uh, real start uh, career change. Yeah. But, like, I also think that, like, I would still have these ideals and still be a police officer if that's, like, another deterrent for me ever becoming a cop. Like, I would still – I still love the people that I know through yeah. policing. I have a lot of friends that are police officers. I have family that are police officers. I have mentors in my life that are cops. Mm-hmm. And I remember, like, one of my 
ride-alongs like very early on we were doing a bunch of just like random weird things like driving around in the country because we we're also like in a small like rural town in ontario mm-hmm. and a cop that i was with pulled over the car and like started fixing people's garbage cans that were had like blown over and mm-hmm. blown into the ditch and we're like on the side of the road and so he was like setting them up and you know fixing them and moving them back out to people's houses and like ended up just like doing a bunch of stuff and like cleaning up these people's front yards and I was like, why did you do that? And he was like, my job as a police officer isn't to ruin people's day, isn't to ruin people's lives or give people shit. So like, my job is to make people safer. Yeah. And I'm here just to make people safer. If me moving that garbage can makes people safer, then that's what I'm going to do. Yeah, and that's part of my job description. Yeah. And there's also like a like a certain skepticism to be like, well, you were there. I'm sure you wouldn't have done that if you weren't there watching him, right? Mm-hmm. That people being seen, like people being watched act differently. But like... That really stuck with me because I truly believe that like a lot of those people that I worked with when I was a, you know, I was like 16 years old doing right alongs with OBP, they were some of the best, most moral people that I've ever met. And they were the most self-sacrificing of themselves to just treat people decently Mm -hmm. and wanting to be like that kind of classic community-minded police officers that know everyone in town. Uh, say hi to everyone or willing to give people breaks. You know what I mean? Or not like, like not to like break the law or whatever, but like just like treat people fairly. Mm-hmm. And I saw them, you know, have to do arrests, have to intervene in some of the worst times of people's lives. And that's the thing with like emergency services, right? You're there with people on the worst day of their lives. Yeah. This is the most stressful thing that's ever happened to a lot of people. This is uh, the most chaotic time in their lives. This is the hardest thing they're ever going to have to deal with. It's their most heightened emotional state. And you need to be a kind of calm, calming force, right? Like, what are you going to do to make alleviate this situation for them, make them feel better, make them safer, make them, um, at the end of the day, right, you're not going around trying to, like, ruin people's lives. Yeah. And so I think that was really important for me to see people who had very strong core values find a career and find a place where they felt like they could live that kind of life that they wanted, right? And also, like, how they relied on one another to kind of fend off the demons of, like, becoming jaded after seeing that same thing, right? They talk about, like, the thin blue line, right? Yeah. And that kind of idea that, like, you're constantly dealing with people in chaos. Mm-hmm. And how does that impact what you take home at the end of the day, right? And yeah. that's, like, vicarious trauma is, like, a a huge thing, right? Like, it's, you know, people are, it will kill you. It's, you know, it's PTSD. It's all those things that... Um, really impact emergency service workers. And so that kind of like immediacy of helping people is what really drew me to emergency services. And also just realizing that I had a real knack or like a real fortitude for uh, being able to handle and function in those stressful situations. Because mm-hmm. so many people, when those things happen, right, freeze and aren't able to do anything. But I found that I was really drawn to that because I could function in very high stressful situations. Mm-hmm. Which is um, so important, right, to be able to stay calm in those situations. And there's a number of times where I've been personally tested by, like, either medical emergency or, um, you know, a fire emergency or policing kind of situation where, you know, shit's happening and I was able to stay calm and function through it. And that's something that people, not everyone can do. Yeah. No, that's, 
Yeah. Very fair. I mm-hmm. think, you know, I think everyone, like, has a couple people like that in mm-hmm. their lives where you're like, that's mm-hmm. the exact person I want in case anything mm-hmm. fucked ever happens. Because mm-hmm. you're like, that person will be super like, okay, mm-hmm. we're doing this, we're doing this, mm-hmm. we're doing this. I wonder were, like, a lot of the mm-hmm. cops, like, in your community when you were, like, growing up mm-hmm. and then doing sort of emergency services type mm-hmm. stuff, were they also indigenous? Yeah. So I would say I met – so when I was – my first summer job was doing ride-alongs with the OPP like night shifts and do like 12 hour shifts which is like in lieu of like probably a program that doesn't exist anymore yeah. like it's very like very like this seemed like a good idea and then oh god maybe we shouldn't do this yeah, it like, seems what? like a to me it seems like a lawsuit waiting to happen let's not yeah. have teens doing 12 hour ride alongs yeah. with cops yeah, yeah it seems like a bad idea to me yeah so it was like uh i wonder if they still do it actually i'm sure they don't um in this unit. So, like, there's usually, like, so in emergency services, there's usually, like, four teams. Mm-hmm. And so one's working nights, one working days. And when the other team's off, then the other people are working. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like that rotation. Yeah. Right? And so the guy who I was matched with was an indigenous man mm-hmm. working in the OPP. Um, but we worked very closely with the First Nations police. And the majority of those people are First Nations. They're from the community. And same with the fire department, right? Like, they're all indigenous people or most of them are indigenous people. They're all from the community. And I also feel that, like, there's something to be said for the OPP really trying to implement some of the recommendations that April Wash inquiry. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if you remember, like, April Wash, yep. right? Oh, so, I sure do. Yeah. So everyone remembers April Wash. And there's been a real kind of, like, um, real serious effort from the OPP to um, change the way that they do business. And, you know, there's a lot of focused recruitment. They're doing all those things that you would expect of an organization to do when they have an overrepresentation of white men in their field, right? Mm -hmm. They're not necessarily changing the aptitude or the base requirements to do the job, Mm -hmm. but they are putting in a concerted effort to recruit um, people with a a varied lived experience, right? Mm -hmm. So that's – but also, like, there's a bunch of other recommendations at Rochester Cray. But I remember, like, this is one of them, right? And one of the, like, we were, I was, like, from a targeted community. I was from a community that was, like, oh, we should have a young person from this community recruited and developed for this kind of role. Oh, okay. Um, whereas, like, Ipawash, they were also targeted for this program mm-hmm. and no young person had ever applied for the program yeah. from that community, which is like speaks to some of the stresses that existed there that didn't exist in my community and didn't exist at that time that certainly existed by the time I was like 18 or mm-hmm. 19 and going to college. That was uh, – there were some really dynamic radical changes that happened in my community um, in that time. Yeah. Like my community went through its own – kind of like land reclamation thing, which is like what the Lakotas are going through right now, is that um, we had that in uh, Caledonia mm-hmm. in like, oh, I don't remember the year. Oh, I was in five oh six. Yeah, I was in my final year of high school. So I also had the joy of like going to high school in a predominantly white small town, like a small town where like there are more cows than people. Mm-hmm. And then there being like a major like, indigenous land rights claim and uh reclamation that was a terrible terrible time Mm -hmm. uh mainly to know a lot of white people because Mm -hmm. let me tell you that Mm -hmm. every fucking white person you met especially like i'm like i Mm -hmm. grew up kitchener waterloo right so not super far removed from Mm -hmm. where you grew up and Mm -hmm. it's like everyone had a fucking opinion Mm -hmm. about caledonia yeah and i was like 
oh, please, for the love of God, shut up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Whatever you have to say, I'm sure is so deeply offensive. And I've yeah. just yelled at so many people. <laughs> yeah, it's like it was really wild. It was really wild to do that. And it was wild to then leave the community. I went to school in Sudbury, like, after that. Like, yeah. I was also, like, really motivated to become a police officer. And so mm-hmm. I had, like, a lot of mentors who were like, this is what you got to do. You know, they're not going to um, – you got to have lived experience. That's what they tell everyone. Like, they, they want people that have lived experience, that have worked with vulnerable people, that have worked with populations that are um, prone to human rights violations, that are likely to experience um, people that – would fall under the prohibitive grounds for discrimination. Mm-hmm. So you've worked with racialized people, you've worked with people with disabilities, you have recent experience working with them. So mm-hmm. like when you go through like a recruitment kind of thing, your experience has to be within the last two years. Oh. So you have to demonstrate in the very recent history that you have worked with vulnerable populations. And so when I went to school for police foundations, it was very much like, can you comfortably interact with homeless people Mm -hmm. and go into these situations where people are very vulnerable and not make things worse. Um, The school I went to was actually like one of the best schools for um, Mm -hmm. police foundations. The faculty was amazing. They were all previous uh, police officers that were very well respected in the policing community. And they really try to weed out the assholes, essentially, Mm -hmm. right? Which is what they're doing. They're trying to find people that have good judgment and they really try to educate us on things like social welfare, uh, people when they fall through the cracks, what your job, what your role is in that system, um, psychology, sociology, really trying to raise people's awareness, you know, ethics and things like that. That's what you study Mm -hmm. in that program, right? And you learn what creates vulnerability in people in society. So that was also like a really part of like sharpening my wokeness, I guess, <laughs> right? It was just like that kind of um, base understanding of like, here's how the world works. If you want to be a police officer, you should know a little bit about abnormal psychology. We've been going for like well over an hour. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Oh, wow. Shit. Okay. What did, you, what did you want to talk about? Do you want an hour five? Okay. Okay. Let's wrap, we got to wrap it up. Okay. Man. Yeah. Peace the hell out. What else should we talk about? I feel like we haven't been that funny. <sighs> too real. Too yeah, real. Too real. Sometimes it gets too real. Um. Well. Okay, I thought you were funny, Courtney. <laughs> I thought you were a comedian. <laughs> Maybe this is why the men don't like you. <laughs> um. Well, do you want to talk about your – you want to take five minutes to talk about how you have terrible taste in men or is that not something you want to publicly air? That's just I my have, grievance with I you. I the worst. I was going to – I was talking with someone about this earlier too. I was like, I thought this was a podcast where women weren't asked about their sexual preferences <laughs> <laughs> and the men in their lives. There are no men in my life. Um, there are no people in my life. <laughs> that's – well, I was just going to say, not we're not romantically <laughs> yeah. doing the thing, but I'm in your life. Yeah, that's true. That's true. You're a very important person in my life. Thank you. Um. Yeah, I have the worst taste in men, I think, of anyone that I know. No, you have the worst taste in men <laughs> of anyone I know. Yeah. I, I know a lot of people with bad taste in men, like myself included. Yeah. Um, like, Courtney is always just like, oh, my God, I have a crush on this guy. And I was like, wait, let me guess. Is he in his mid-40s, <laughs> racially ambiguous, <laughs> kind of unattractive <laughs> like i just like you're just you're always like this guy and i'm like yeah oh okay yeah 
I guess. Like someone almost <laughs> old enough to be my dad? I don't know. Um, I had a joke about this too, which is like too real, but like everyone's like sees that I date like or I'm attracted to like older men and everyone's like, ooh, daddy issues. And I was like, actually my brothers are like in their 40s. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, wait, is that a better or worse? Yeah, I don't know if it's better or worse or if I just have this conceptualization of my peer group being much older than I am. Yeah, I maybe. Think, I think that's what it is. I think it's that, like I just view my peers as being older. Yeah. Or like people that because I'm also like the youngest person, like, like one of the youngest people in my family. So I have like 40 first cousins. There's only yeah, like you have so many. There cousins. are only like three of them that are younger than me. Really? Like so I'm on the younger end of my family. So everyone that I've always been around has been older than I am, except for like maybe three cousins on my mom's side of the family and two cousins on my dad's side of the family. Yeah, I guess all the little bambinos that you're always around are like mm-hmm. your brother's kids mm-hmm. or like your cousin's kids or whatever. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, that's man. I always think I have like, because I have 12 first cousins on my mm-hmm. dad's side, which is like, that's like mm-hmm. a good amount, but like Jesus, yeah. 40. My God. Oh, my gosh. My dad's older sister had 13 kids. 13 children? Yeah. <laughs> my grandma had eight kids. I'm always like, eight fucking kids. Damn, that's some Irish Catholic shit. Yeah. But like 13 children. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> my grandma had, my mom's mom had 10 kids. Yeah. So. <sighs> Damn. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, that so, explains the 40 yeah, cousins. There's a really, lot of, you know? like, I have a lot of cousins and they're all older than me. So, like, I feel like that's part of also, like, why I'm kind of always been a little bit more mature, I think. Mm-hmm. Because, like, people ask, like, oh, you had brothers. Did you always get into, like, trouble and stuff? It's like, no. My brothers are so much older than me. It was like having five parents. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, there's no fuck away I could get in trouble. Yeah. There was nothing I could do. There was nothing I could ever, like, it was always just like strict in my household. <laughs> like, all, like, not strict, but just like, there was nothing for me to do. And there was no one like conspiring with me to get into trouble because my brothers were like, no, you're a little baby girl that we love. Yeah, do like, not get in any trouble. Yeah. You were like, fuck you, I'm going to go be a cop. Yeah. <laughs> That's what literally my car So when I got accepted into police foundations, I got early acceptance to a school that I didn't go to, but I checked online. I was like, oh, I got, got accepted to school. And my brother was sitting on the couch and he's like, what did you, like, he didn't even know what I applied for. He's like, what did you apply for? And I was like, oh, I applied for police foundations. And he was like, is that what you want to do with your life? You want to be an asshole? You want to be a professional <laughs> asshole? And I was like, Better than an amateur one like you sitting on the couch all day. <laughs> Boom. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Fuck you, older brother, whichever number you yeah. are. <laughs> yeah. So that was like, yeah, that was my one good burn I think I've ever gotten in my brother my entire 30 years of living with him. And that's, I got one good well, dig you, you know what? One is enough. As the oldest of four girls, I would say... <laughs> I, you know, I've gotten in uh, only a handful of burns on me in my life. All the good burns on me are from my dad, actually. Yeah. He's the real <laughs> roast master of the family, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, to be real, though, mm-hmm. I got to change my tampon, so we really yeah. got to stop recording. <laughs> Keep that uh, one in there. Yeah. <laughs> yes, please do. I have my period. I got it today. It was a real surprise. I blame my sister. Her uterus is so bossy. It's always bossing around my uterus. That's what I get for being a bossy oldest child my whole life. Um, okay, yo, yeah. thank you for coming, Courtney. Thank you for Love having ya. me. And as always, thanks for listening, yeah? My thanks once again so much to my dear friend Courtney Sky for coming through. Cavern of Secrets is brought to you by Hazlitt. It's hosted by me, Lauren Mitchell. 
Our theme song was made by Bianca Giulione. And our show was and is always produced by Anshuman Idemsetti. You can find us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and our gosh darn website, cavernofsecrets.com. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter if you like, if you're on the Twitter books, as my dad calls it, at Cavern of Secrets. And if you like what we're doing, you should totally give us a rating on iTunes. Uh, every star counts. And also, a little shout out to everyone who voted for us in that Now Magazine thing. We came in second. So shout out to you for giving out your government name and your email and all that shit. I appreciate it. One more time for the people in the cheap seats. My name is Lauren Mitchell, and I will see you next time. 